Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you just for the opportunity that we have this morning to come before you. And uh, just as we open up your word right now as a church, as we've been walking through the book of Acts, Lord, I just, uh, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be here. We recognize that he is here. I pray you would make yourself obvious to us this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, just as we open your word and proclaim it, um, Lord, I just pray you'd speak to us as your people. Lord, um, we are a people who are in, um, just as, as we live life, just as it comes to us, Lord, we are in constant need of your encouragement, your direction, your comfort, Lord, and your strength. And I pray right now, just as your word is proclaimed, that you would deliver those um, to us, a people who are in desperate need of them. Um, we love you so much, Lord, and take this word, which is eternal and true, Lord, and we ask that you would simply write it on our hearts and use it to form us to become the people that you have designed us to be. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you're new or visiting, just uh, you probably have figured it out, we are as a church walking through the book of Acts. Um, and it's a journey that we've been as a church uh, for over a year, about a year and a half now, and we're coming to its end, and we're in the latter part of the book here. And what we've been doing as we've been watching and walking through the book of Acts is we've been watching the church of Jesus Christ explode, as it were, on the scene, catch fire and expand through the word, through the world. This is, as we read the book of Acts, be sure of it, this is the story, the history of God's people, led by God's spirit as they proclaim God's word. Now, what we've noticed as we've studied the book of Acts is that this story, our story, it involves adventure. So much of what we've seen along the way through this journey has been filled with adventure, things that are amazing. We've seen God form a community of people, which is a remarkable community of people that are committed to living life together. It is a compelling vision of what our community can and should look like. We've seen this life of adventure, this story of adventure has included rapid expansion and multiplication all throughout the world. We've seen miracles, healings. We've seen a dead person brought back to life. There's no shortage of adventure, visions of Jesus himself, like we saw last week, coming, not a vision, but Jesus himself standing by the Apostle Paul. It is amazing some of the stuff that we've seen. But there's other parts of the story. Maybe there's aspects of the story. As we, as we read this story full of adventure, we think, let me get some of that. But there's other aspects of the story that maybe we wonder, I wonder if we could do without a little bit of that. <laughs> could we, is there a way that we can delete that? from the story. This is a story that is full, be sure of it, full of adventure, but it also involves a tremendous amount of suffering, of hardships. Early on, we saw Stephen killed for staking, taking a stand for Jesus in chapter seven. What we've seen recently is as Paul has gone about his mission, we have seen chapter after chapter after chapter as Paul has endured one hardship after another. He's been driven out of cities. He's been rejected by his own people. He's been misrepresented, falsely accused. Last week, an angry mob was ready to lynch Paul. Eventually, he was saved, though, through Roman intervention. We find him in our section today, and where is Paul? Well, simply put, he's in jail. So far, the story of Acts has been a story that is full of real adventure and real hardship. It's a story that is full of joy and suffering. And what we'll see and what we will continue to see, what we've talked about a lot is the reality is this is a pattern by which our life is formed as well. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will live a life. Your story will be one that is marked both by joy 
and by suffering. We know this to be true. For one, Jesus prepared his church, his disciples for this life. In Matthew chapter five, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then he says this, rejoice and be glad. He says, you will be persecuted because of me. This is how he's preparing his disciples. But then he also says, you will be blessed those two realities, joy, suffering, simultaneously, not did, just did Jesus prepare his people for this, Jesus also modeled this reality for his people. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, it says, describes Jesus as one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, this is the pattern, not just of the church as we read and learn about it in the book of Acts. This is the pattern of the individual, the man or the woman, the, the, the young boy or the young girl, the student who says, I wanna give my life to follow Jesus. Your life, likewise, will be a interesting mix of both joy and suffering, guaranteed. We're seeing it in the book of Acts. Now, if you are here this morning, and maybe for some of us, what happens is oftentimes those seasons of joy, just as we live life together in the community of Christ, those seasons of joy, those seasons of suffering are not always overlapping with each other. And so there are some of us this morning who are in the midst of experiencing tremendous joy. Our life, it seems like, is just a wonderful joy to live. Things are going our way. There are some of us today who can say, that's, that's my reality. I got the promotion, I got the job, I got the, 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 the opportunity to live in a home where I'm able to testify to the things of Jesus and the Lord with my neighbors and things just seem to be going my way. And if that's you this morning, God bless you. It's fantastic. But there are others of us here that are this morning, here this morning, who cannot say that's the season that we're living. Rather, our life, our season is one that is marked by hard times, difficult times, dark times times. We, maybe you, feel discouraged as you sit here this morning. Maybe you feel defeated. Maybe you feel weary of this struggle. You might even find yourself asking yourself this morning, can I go on? Well, it's a good thing that we're in Acts chapter 23 and chapter 24, because what we'll discover this morning is if you are in Christ, you must continue to trust God and serve God. Regardless of whether your life is currently marked by one of joy or by that of suffering, you, me, we are a people whose lives ought to be marked regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our surroundings, regardless of what comes to us as a people who continue to trust and to serve God. Now, here's the deal. Oftentimes, if you're just a human being, and all of you are, okay? So nobody's out of this one. Oftentimes, when things get difficult, what are we tempted to do? Say it out loud. When things get hard, what do you want to do? Give up, throw in the towel, and quit. If you're a human being, that's normal. I've talked often about one of the 
unique ways that I experienced suffering in my life was I was on a cross-country team. I just don't like running. I don't know if there's any joy involved in it. I think it's all suffering. Am I wrong? I don't know. Some of you disagree, and that's okay. But I was on a cross-country team, and quite honestly, I had really bad asthma. It was hard for me to just keep running, and I didn't want to ever give up, but there was times when it was like, I can't breathe. It's better for, the, you know, for my own health if I just step out of this race, get my inhaler, and just call it a quit, call it quits for the day, right? There was times in life where that was, where my race, where that was exactly what I needed to do, right? Oftentimes, we wanna apply the exact same thing to our walk with Jesus. It's just too hard. Living the life that God has called me to, I just can't do it anymore. Well, brothers and sisters, God does not want us to throw in the towel. He does not want us to give up. He does not want us to quit, no matter what the darkness, what the struggle, what the pain, what the suffering. He wants you to continue to persevere, to continue, as we see Paul do in this passage, to trust in him and to serve him. So three points. The first thing we're gonna see is, what does trusting look like for Paul in this passage? The first thing is, we see that Paul trusts the promises of God. He trusts the promises of God. Now, last week, as we considered Paul's, I'll, I'll give you a, a, just a warning right now. We are going from chapter 23, verse 12, all the way through chapter 24. And I'm not gonna read the whole section, okay? As we go through it, I will read, this is unusual for how we normally do it, but I'm gonna read big sections as we go through it, but I will not read every section. I just want, the main thing is for us to, to get the, the big idea of the story, to understand what's going on, and we'll go from there. So last week, as we considered Paul's time in Jerusalem, it was really a time that was full of challenge. And it seems like as we look into, continue in chapter 23 and 24, it seems like he just can't win. Those challenges continue throughout the portion, the, the remaining portion of the book of Acts. And we'll see it all, all throughout that he's mistreated, misunderstood, misrepresented, falsely accused, imprisoned, beaten, on and on and on we go. Suffering challenge after challenge after challenge. These challenges were the direct result of Paul, we looked at this last week, taking a stand for Jesus. And how can he do it? We said this last week. How can he just keep going? He can do it because of this amazing promise that is given to him in verse 11. It was, it was just an amazing text. Verse 11 says, the following night, Shar read it just for us a minute ago, the following night, the Lord stood by him, Jesus himself standing there saying, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This was Paul's secret power source. How could he keep going? Well, the answer is the presence of the risen Lord Jesus was right by his side. Jesus was standing next to him the whole time. What a glorious truth we discovered last week. When we stand for Jesus, he stands with us. That should bring great comfort to all of us. And for Paul, standing for Jesus sort of meant two things. On one hand, it meant speaking the, the words of Jesus, speaking for Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. And on the other hand, it also meant, Paul, we saw this last week, living a life that stood for Jesus. You could see it. You could see it in the way he lived his life and you could, you could understand his stance with Jesus by the way he spoke. As he did so, Jesus stood with him. But yet the challenges keep coming. As we look at the passage from last week and this week, there's so many similarities between these sections. They're both just full of hard times. If you look in, in verses 12 through 15, look down at your Bibles. If you've got it open, if not, it'll be on the screen. But let's look at sort of what happens in this new section. 
In verse 12, it says this, when it was day, so Paul had just received this vision, he's in prison, and when it was day, the Jews made a plot. They bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you and as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So in verse 12, the day before Jesus assured, day after Jesus assured Paul of his presence, we're told the Jews are coming to oppose him again. They are just relentless. They've hatched now a plan, a plot to kill Paul. So committed to this plan they are, they make an oath to one another they wouldn't eat or they wouldn't drink until the plan was executed, until Paul was murdered. Then they share their plan with the chief priests and the elders who told them to go back to the tribune. They said, go back to the tribune. Tell them to send Paul back our way. And we're not gonna eat anything until this man is dead. This is a significant challenge. 40 individuals highly committed to his death. Things don't seem to be improving for Paul. Remember, he's in jail at this time. Eventually, we'll see this more as in greater detail as we go throughout, but the plot is discovered. It's quickly made known to the tribune, who then spares no expense to send Paul off to Caesarea for his protection. And while in Caesarea, this group of individuals who want to see him executed, they're the high priests, the, the elders, the council, they pursue him, they continue to follow after him and make accusations of him. And so the plot is sort of hatched. His accusers are pursuing him. And towards the end of the section, we'll see that as Paul gives a defense, essentially what's said is, just wait. Twice, he's put off by those who are hearing Paul defending his case. He's given the opportunity to defend himself, which he does so cheerfully in chapter 24, verses 10 to 21. Then Felix, the governor, he puts him off. So Paul's back to the barracks. Another hearing now he has later in the chapter, we'll see it in a minute, with Felix and his wife. Paul's put off again, this time for two years. There are significant challenges that Paul is still enduring, still in facing, facing. He's plotted against, he's pursued, and he's put off for two years while he sits in a jail. Things are difficult. Similarities between last, chat, last week and this week, hard times. There's a noticeable difference between last week's passage and this week's passage. The, the difference, one of the significant things that separates them that stands out to me quite honestly is what is missing in this section. There's something that does not happen in this section. While there's a lot of similarities, there's a significant difference. Major challenge, major hardships, but this time, no vision. No night when Jesus appears next to him, standing by him, saying, take courage, I am with you. It doesn't happen. Now, this section in this chapter and a half covers two years, and it does not happen. If it did happen, Luke didn't include it, which is unusual. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, really there's only sort of three times when that, and those three times are significant, when the Lord Jesus appears to Paul and really reminds him of his presence. Here, no voice, no vision, no encounter with Jesus. In fact, the verses between 12 and 35 of, of this chapter, there's no mention of God. The Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, no mention. The name is not mentioned. 
Jesus does not appear to Paul and speak to him. This is still a really dark time for him. What do we make of it? What do we do with the silence, with the absence? I wonder if there's anyone here today who can maybe on some level relate. Maybe you are sitting here this morning and you find yourself in an especially dark, discouraging, difficult time. And God seems distant. God seems silent. We seem to be plodding on the path of life, taking it as it comes to us one day at a time, waiting for a breakthrough, waiting for a word from the Lord. But instead, we find ourselves wondering, like normal human beings, has God forgotten about me? I wonder if Paul thought that. Remember, maybe two years had passed since he had last seen Jesus. I know I'd be tempted to be thinking, I'm still in jail. Things don't seem to be getting any easier. Have you forgotten about me? Where are you? Maybe you're wondering the same thing this morning. Does God still care? Is he still with you? Well, brothers and sisters, encourage you this morning not to lose heart in those moments. Don't lose heart. One New Testament commentator said this, God is never closer to his people than when they cannot see his face. God is never closer to his people than when they cannot see his face. See, there is a unique communion, a unique fellowship that we share with God that exists uniquely during those dark times, those times of suffering where God draws especially near to us. And what do we do in those moments when we feel like we wanna throw in the towel and give up? We live by the words that we have heard from God. I can imagine Paul in his cell enduring one hardship after another. No, he doesn't get a special vision or another night where Jesus is standing in front of him, but do you know what he does have? Two words that Jesus said to him two years ago. Take courage. Take courage. Courage. Yes, you're alone and afraid, but remember the words of Jesus. Take courage. Yes, you might be sitting here this morning feeling lost and unsure of yourself. Remember, the, these are words that Jesus spoke to Paul, but we read them this morning. Do you know what? They are words that we read for ourselves. Weak and wounded, we remember the words of Jesus. Take courage. We trust in the promises of God. Second thing that I think that brings, that brings some degree of, or that we should, that Paul, that we see him clearly here trusting is not just in the promises of God, which is something that we ought to follow suit in, but he also trusts in the providence of God. As we read this story, the providence of God comes leaping off the pages at us. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the name of God's not mentioned in verses 12 through 35, but that does not mean his fingerprints are not on the scenarios and the activities of this chapter. In fact, they're everywhere to be found. We see his hand at work all throughout the story. His involvement is so obvious. 
And just as it's important for us to hold on to the promises of God when we face hardship and difficult times, it's also necessary for us to, to trust in the providence of God, to trust his sovereign control over all of our life. This is so crucial for us, especially when we're walking through difficult times. What we see in this chapter is that God's hand is all around it. He is actively at work, though sometimes quiet, though sometimes invisible, he's always in control. First way we see it is that, that God uses Paul's nephew to disrupt the plot. If you go back to chapter 23 and look at verse 16, after the plot is hatched, where Paul is in prison, they're trying to kill him. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat uh, more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. They have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one what you've informed me of these events. Now, they, they had hatched the plan, but did you know? I don't, up until reading this section, we have no knowledge that Paul even has a sister. I mean, it's amazing. Reading the book of Acts, I feel like Paul is my dude. Like, I feel like I have a, just a total understanding of this guy's life. I feel a closeness to him, an affinity for him. I feel like I understand this man. I get him. But I don't know anything about him. It's amazing. And neither do you, because the Bible hardly says anything about his personal life. I mean, other than a few places where it seems as if Paul is suggesting that becoming a Christian, he cut off connections with all of his family. We really don't know. I mean, we know that he's a Roman citizen because of his father, and then he's got a sister. This is it as far as his personal life. But here, it's clear, Paul has a nephew. He has a sister, and apparently she has a son who just so happened to overhear the plot that was hatched to kill Paul, and immediately he makes Paul aware of it. Then they tell the centurion who actually listens and is able to take action, it's amazing. I have no idea throughout the story that there's even a nephew and here he is arriving on the scene, sort of saving the day. The sovereignty of God, his providence comes shining through in this passage. God is using the little things, the, the little children. Some think that this individual was probably as young as a boy because he had to be led by the hand. We have no idea how old he is, but in the text, it seems like he's young. That's one of the few facts that, that Luke in includes. A young individual. And this is how God works. This is a part of his grand plan for Paul as his chosen instrument. The big bad plans of man are no match for the grand plan of God. He uses here ordinary people in ordinary places doing ordinary things that are just right in front of them. God's at work even in these small, ordinary details of life. He doesn't hesitate, in fact, to use the small things of this world for his big purposes. You think throughout the Bible, a little small shepherd boy armed with a sling and five simple stones, using that to slay a massive giant. 
Or Moses, the son of slave parents, before he was called, spent 40 years as a shepherd in the desert, just a small, regular individual. When God chose to send his son to this earth, he picked a young virgin girl of Nazareth to be his mother, a simple, ordinary, young girl. And he himself, when he came, he, when he was born, he was born in a dirty barn, lived a common life, no place to lay his head throughout his life. Simple, ordinary. Yet God uses these simple, little, ordinary things to accomplish his big purposes in the world. This is God. This is how he works. This is how he chooses to work. He loves to use the small things. It gives him an opportunity, if nothing else, to flex his muscles and to show that he's the one who's in control. His fingerprints are all throughout this story. We see it again in how God uses Lysias to protect Paul. If you look at verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 20 ho there were 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. He goes on to write a letter and essentially Lysias is, is being utilized right now and think about what he, how he steps in. He steps in and says, I want 200, I mean, over 470 individuals to transport Paul from prison to Caesarea, 470 individuals. Now this may seem like overkill. I think there's a reason for it. One, this is how Romans did it. Go big or go home, right? It's just the Roman way. But secondly, remember Lysias is potentially in trouble himself. Lysias captured Paul, a Roman citizen, was ready to flog him. This is an opportunity, I think, for Lysias to say, hold on a second, we can kind of see the chapters from last week and this week coming together. This is an opportunity for me to sort of save my hide, right? I, I could potentially be in trouble if they realized what I had, how I had treated this Roman citizen. Let's just do it big. 470 individuals transporting Paul to protect him. He gives a letter, tells, sends a letter along with the group that says essentially why he's doing it. And the letter is mostly factual, except he says that he, he didn't learn that the reason why he was involved was because he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen. That was not true. He discovered upon just about ready to flog Paul that he was a Roman citizen. So he sends this letter along with the governor. Again, we see God's hand at work, this time working through a secular government, a Roman official not outside of God's reach, an individual who does not follow Jesus, an individual who has a tremendous amount of power, but zero interest in the way of Jesus. Yet God is at work through him. Throughout scripture, we see that God's rule over the affairs of people and nations is just, he's just as involved there as he is here. This is what Proverbs tells us. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he's able to turn it wherever he wills. So while we see God at charge and involved in the small little details of Paul's nephew, we also see him orchestrating things on a massive level through the Roman government. This should bring us, as his people, a great deal of comfort. Just as we look at the world around us, now, oftentimes, I think especially as we step into an election season, what can happen to people is we can get fearful, right? I mean, we should take great interest in who is the leader of our land and the laws. We talked about this a little bit last week, the laws that govern it. We should be involved in that process. But at the same time, the providential plan is going to be carried out. 
Yes, we are a part of it. We have responsibility to participate in it. But at the end of the day, he's sovereign. His plans will happen. And there's nothing that can be done to stop them, whether it's a little individual or a large government, nothing can stop him. And we, we see this as it continues on, that God uses the Roman army to deliver Paul, to transport him to Caesarea. Soldiers take him by night, some 35 hours downhill from Jerusalem to a place that's a sort of a staging area for Roman troops built by Herod. From there, the men on foot return and the men on horseback continue to take Paul in sort of a dignified way protected to Caesarea. From there, the governor promises to hear Paul's case as soon as his accusers arrive. So, so far we've seen the unnamed nephew disrupts the plan. Lysias develops a new plan and Roman soldiers deliver Paul to safety. Another way of saying it, we see the king at work. This is his plan. This is the providential plan that God has for Paul. What, what is the providence of God? John Piper just wrote a massive text called Providence. You should read it if you want to know more, all right? I'll just give you one sentence from that book about what is the providence of God. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty. We think of sovereignty and we think of his control, his might. Well, the, sort of the difference between providence and sovereignty is that providence is the purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. What does it mean that God is, has, is providentially in charge? It means that God is purposefully at work to accomplish his goals. And we have the option as his people of either getting on board with that or not. It's as simple as that. In Acts 9, 15 and 16, if you remember when Paul was initially converted, this was a part God sort of showed Paul by, through way of Ananias what his plan was for him. So, but the Lord said to him, go for he, referring to Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. All the way from the very beginning, God had a purpose for Paul. And what we're seeing here in Acts 23 and 24 is that that purpose is unfolding. I mean, being seen, it's not falling apart. You can see it. You can see his plan being executed. He's suffering like he said he would. He's taking the, the, the name of Jesus to the nation of Israel, to Gentiles. By the end of Acts, we'll see him delivering it to kings. God's purposes in Paul's life can't be stopped and they won't be stopped in yours as well because God is, has providence. So he trusts. We are, as people, trust in his providence. So the first two parts had to do with trusting in God. In hard times and difficult times, what's our responsibility? We are first and foremost to cling to the promises of God and trust his word and also trust his providence. But third, we are to continue serving God by speaking his word. Another thing that we see over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And you see this especially in chapter 24. As the story continues after arriving in Caesarea, Paul is eventually arraigned by the uh, provincial governor, Felix, joined by Ananias, the high priest, and other elders, one of them being Tertullus, who served as their spokesman. And from verses two to nine, he makes his case. 
begins, this is Ananias accusing Paul again. He begins with flattering. You can read that section two to nine on your own to see sort of the accusations that are leveled against them. But essentially he begins with flattery. He calls Paul a plague, accusing him of being a political agitator, the ringleader for a sectarian cult, a cult who's responsible for defiling the temple, which we know is a lie. Then in verses 10 through 21, Paul gives his defense. Again, you can read this on your own. Paul stands up and defends himself. We see do Paul, what he, what, if you read the section, you'll see he's, he's doing what he's done over and over again when given a chance to speak. He not only defends himself, but he primarily seizes the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, here's the deal. As I was reading this in his defense, Paul has been lied against. All he has to, I mean, really all he, the primary thing that most of us would likely do in this circumstance would just be to tell the truth. No, that's not what happened. Here are the circumstances. Here are the facts. This is what I did. Yeah, Paul does share that. And then you know what he does? Seizes the rest of the opportunity to proclaim Jesus. And and that's Paul's whole whole motive. Every chance he get, the words of Christ are just falling out of his mouth, seizing every opportunity to give a defense, not just for himself, but a defense for the gospel. In verses 11 to 16, he addresses the charge, defends his innocence. In 70 to 20, he speaks to his blameless civil behavior, gives his version of the story concerning the issue, concerning the issue of defying the temple. And then in verse 21, Paul ends in classic style by pointing them to the resurrection of Jesus, which was the central aspect of every message that he gave and of his life. And it should be of ours as well as the people of God. Now, following his defense, Felix, we're told in verse 22, decided to put them off, back to his cell, put them off. Doesn't know what to do with them exactly yet. Then some days later, we're told in chapter 24, as it continues, that Felix and his wife, Drusilla, send for Paul, giving him sort of an opportunity at a private hearing. So he had a chance to speak publicly in defense of himself, and now he has a private audience with Felix and his wife. And it's interesting, I think this, of all of the section, this verse is the one that stuck out the most to me because it's unusual. It's an unusual way for Luke to write. It's an unusual way for Paul to speak, yet here it is. Why did he say it this way? In verse 25, remember, a private setting, Felix, the governor, Drusilla, his wife. And Paul says in verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. That verse, verse 25, stuck out to me. Paul gets the opportunity to speak with the governor, a Roman governor and his wife. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what do I gotta say to make this thing go my way, all right? How do I get out of this jail cell? How do I ensure that I'm not lynched? That's what's on my mind. But Paul, reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. What? Why? Why? I mean, to me, it seems awkward. It seems weird. Righteousness and self-control, Paul? Why are those the focus of your speech? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the people he's speaking to. He's speaking to Felix. Felix was the first slave of a Roman empire to become a governor of a Roman province. As kids, he and his brother had been friend, freed by a mother of a future Caesar, Claudius. Because of this relationship, he was eventually appointed when Claudius was an emperor as a Roman official. 
And during his time governing Palestine, do you know what he was known for? Let's just put it this way. He's a bad dude. This individual was especially brutal. He was known during his time, there was uprisings and there was instability largely due to his brutality as a leader. He was not a man who was marked by righteousness and self-control. One historian described him as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a kind with a spirit of a slave. Regularly crucified those who stood against him. So here's a man who if you oppose him, you likely will be crucified. And his wife, Drusilla, she's the daughter of Agrippa I. She met Felix while she was married to king of Syria. She was drawn to him because of his power and the opportunity it might provide for her to share in it. And as a young woman, she said, all right, skip you, king of Syria. I got a new man. Saw an opportunity. Unlike her husband, she was born a Jew. She had religious roots, but she was not living for the Lord. And here they are, listening to Paul listening to him, reason for the faith. And what does he do? Speaks truth, and in doing so, confronts them head on with an unrighteous lifestyle and a lack of self-control. Paul does not make the message of Jesus palatable, necessarily. Rather, he gives them the truth speaks to them about personal salvation and personal morality. He did not just tell them what they likely wanted to hear. He challenged them, called them out. See, here's the deal. Paul is more concerned with faithfully proclaiming God's word than simply winning their approval. I'll just be honest, when I was discovering this truth, this one hit me. Because my personality is I wanna make people happy. I'm just like a, I, now you might, some of you might be thinking, you don't do a very good job of that, all right? I've been trying to be happy for the last six years and you have been keep messing it up. I, I try, that's what I wanna do, all right? So I, I'm a people pleaser at heart. I avoid confrontation, it's just the way I've always sort of been. It's hard for me to speak words that confront and convict. And so my temptation, even in sharing Jesus, oftentimes is just to avoid the parts that might rub hard with some folks. And I'll tell you what, Paul resists that temptation. Doesn't really matter, he doesn't seem to be overly concerned with what the outcome is. You know, as far as like, could it mean he's crucified? He's concerned that the outcome is primarily about their hearts. And so what does he do? He starts by reminding them, no one is righteous. Nobody is. We've all sinned. I just, my mind immediately goes to his letter of Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He spoke about the coming judgment because nobody will escape divine accountability. These guys included. A, re a reality they would one day give an account before the maker of the universe for how they live their lives. Here's the point. In his service to God, in his witness to others about Jesus, Paul did not soft pedal the truth. He was concerned with winning their souls to Jesus. 
only one person could save them. And Paul's message pointed them to that one person. He started with their lostness and their need. Brothers and sisters, every single one of us in this room, apart from Jesus, we will stand before a maker, our maker, and we'll have to give an account for our deeds. The Bible's very clear of that. And if we don't know, if that moment, if you think forward to what that could be like for you, if you are trembling in fear because you know your life has not measured up, none of ours has. Paul is giving them the opportunity to say, in that moment, you should be able to say, it's not my righteousness that I'm saved, but it's Jesus's. He died for me. The one who lived a sinless life took on my sins. That's, that's precisely what Paul's getting at. Didn't soft pedal the truth. He pointed them to Jesus. Here's what I want to do. I want to, we're going to transition to a time of communion. And we do it a little unusual today. And before we do that, I'm going to give you just a moment in your seats to reflect. Um, what we saw in this passage, and I, there's some parts that we didn't cover. I encourage you to go back and read it on your own. But we saw Paul continuing to trust in the promises, providence of God, and committed in his faithful service to speak Jesus, to serve God by speaking Jesus. So what I want to do now, just quietly, is to reflect on two questions. I think they're up there. Perfect. Question number one, I have to look. How do you, how do you need to trust God today? Now, my guess is there's many of us today, as I mentioned earlier, that are facing difficult times. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's finances. Uh, maybe it's a future. You don't know what is ahead. Maybe it's, it's, it's a, a past issue that you continue to struggle with and deal with. And it's been hard for you to trust God with, understandably so. What areas in your life do you need to trust Jesus? The second question I wanna just give you time to reflect is who can you, as we consider how Paul was boldly speaking, straightforward with the word, speaking Jesus, who in your life needs to hear the hope of Jesus? Just reflect on those two things. How can you trust him? And how can you serve him by speaking about him? Quietly do that.